0: Kenny Noy thought that this was a self-solver. He had to get away and going to get away and let people, the statements, be taken and see what they got before he might return. If Kenny Noy had done nothing, literally just gone home, got rid of the clothes he was in, there would have been no evidence linking him to the scene.
1: I'm Nicola Tallent, and you're listening to Crime World, a podcast about criminals drugs and the sins of the underworld in Ireland and across the globe. He remains one of the UK's most written about criminals, an old school fence involved in the infamous Brinks Matt robbery and who made his name after a sensational road rage incident which saw him go on the run for more than two years. Kenneth Noy was notorious a number of times over and the complexities of his past had a tendency to catch up on him time and time again. Now 75 and free from prison, he has finally broken his silence and spoken for the first time in a new book by journalist Donal McIntyre and writer Carl Howman. Today, I'm talking to Donal about his book A Million Ways to Stay on the Run and the sensational story of one of Britain's most famous killers. This is Crime World, a podcast from sundayworld.com. Let's start this story with uh, the day uh, Stephen Cameron is driving along as a passenger in a car, and there's a road rage incident. And it's a kind of,
0: it was a road rage incident. It was pretty standard road rage incident in 1996, and um, it got out of hand. Uh, you know, and I, I think the opening line of the book is basically the red mist descended and only one man was left standing, and that was effectively it. It was described by the judge subsequently as a very banal incident with a hugely tragic and formidable and uh, unbelievable outcome, Um, and that outcome was obviously delivered at the hands of a knight, Throughout most of the interaction, which may have lasted for over a minute, it was clear from most of the witnesses that Kenny Noy was being, you know, getting the worst of it. He was getting pretty badly beaten up by somebody who was lit, lit, 21 years of age, who was a part-time doorman, security guy. He was a occasional kickboxer who obviously could look after himself and very formidable. Was well, several inches taller than 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 the five foot nine Kenny Noy. And uh, Kenny Noy was, you know, 50-51. So this was a quite an uneven fight. And Noy this t- so thought in his, uh, in his testimony that he was not going to make it back to the car. So he took a knife out, a penknife, and he used it twice. There was some testimony which suggested, which claimed that he'd gone back to the car and taken a knife from the car. And uh, that was disputed. Uh, and that was kind of quite important about whether this was manslaughter or murder. In any case, outrageous uh, uh, r- and devastating outcome mm. for Stephen Cameron, age 21. His girlfriend, Danielle Cable, who would, uh, was going to play a substantial part in the rest of the story, was there in tears. Stephen's parents lived nearby. They raced to the scene. There were pri- private ambulances collected them. And, but the damage, just as luck would have it you know, you know, hundreds and thousands of kind of small nicks and stab wounds. And, you know, most of them are never fatal. And this was a fatal blow. Um, Kenny Noy didn't realise that he'd killed him because Stephen Cameron was still standing as he left the scene. And then he went off to clean up at a friend's house and then went to a pub and had a Sunday pub lunch. Meanwhile, and uh, another little installment his extraordinary story um a guy called Alan de Cabral was a witness to this, and he um his evidence kind of uh changed and became quite lurid and sensational as he came to court, which may and that may have had something to do, which we deal with later in the correspondence is that uh is that he um he was carrying a load of cocaine mm. in the back of his car at that time he witnessed the attack. And he uh, later later testified that Kenny Noy was smiling as he came away from the scene of the attack. Highly unlikely that that happened. In any event, about six months before his trial. Uh, Al Cabral was arrested and found with uh, 56 uh, guns, 126 pounds of cash, uh, a load of cocaine and uh, a car with all sorts of compartments. This was a serious drug deal. And uh, this guy and, just uh, happened
1: to be yeah. a witness to one of the most famous criminal incidents in the UK history. And,
0: and so here he is. So he phones up and he phones up 10 minutes late and he's thinking, right, I've got to get away from the scene because the police are going to descend and I've got cocaine in the back. <laughs> and at the same time is, um, but mm, he must be thinking, this is something I can use down the line to arbitrage if I need to call it any favours. Because in the background, Kenny Noy was public enemy number mm. one. And he was public enemy number one for, for for one key reason. One, he was involved in the Brinks mat and convicted for 14 years of involvement in the uh, fencing and laundering of the proceeds from the Brinks mat robbery. And additionally, during the course of that investigation, uh, an undercover police officer dressed up in what I think was described in court as ninja outfit without any police ID, uh, uh, snuck onto his property with another police officer, was, and this was uh, in, in Kingswood in Kent, a Hollywood cottage, a huge kind of twenty-five acres bit of land, and at the time Kenny Noy was scared of. Um, he had gold mm. in in on the property. Um, it's not clear if it was it was bring smack gold. In fact, it's mo- much more likely that it was Brazilian gold. But in any event, the undercover police officer at DC John Fordham um, came on the property, and instead of retreating, when the dogs in the property alerted Noy to this intrusion and Noy grabbed a knife from his car which he'd used to, a small knife which he'd used to 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 clean out um, a kind of battery and in fact actually there was a problem with the battery because the police had placed a bug in the car which had been drained with the battery. So all quite complicated but uh, tragically D.C. Fordham, um, according to the evidence of the state pathologist, confronted Noy instead of running and um, Noy felt his life was in danger and he stabbed uh, DC Fordham and DC Fordham died, and in the first ever case of the death of a police officer, the um, Keninoy was acquitted. And I remember following this when I was undercover. I think I was undercover in the in, in on the doors um, in, in Nottingham. Maybe um, maybe the, no. I think I've got the, the county right, but I remember following the case and assuming, assuming that this is a a criminal got away with murder, mm. but. When you actually look at the transcript, I mean, that's a tabloid like You get that. OK, it's very convenient to say somebody, you know, got away with murder. The reality was the jury it was a very emphatic jury verdict. But I looked at all the transcripts and not very few people have those transcripts. And it was clear if you'd followed the trajectory of the court, listen to what the jury heard. And in fact, the most persuasive witness in that was actually the um, uh, pathologist for the state. So the state pathologist uh, you know said listen the first blows came from dc fordham and and as a result uh, 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 he was acquitted and he was acquitted nonetheless he killed the policeman and would doubtless never be forgiven by the newspapers or tabloids and indeed he was kept in custody and he was convicted of laundering uh, the brink's mat gold and got a very substantial sentence um 14 years and serving nine and then when he'd come out in 1993, uh, on and off uh, on a license. uh, And then in 1996, life was looking up for him. He's a very astute and sharp businessman. And you know many of these entrepreneurial villains. Um, They're, you know, if you place them in the city, they'd invent the Wolf of Wall Street. Just super fast brains. They know literally uh, they can make a book On anything, just so happens, you know, and Kenny Noy always says that, listen, if there's a gray area, I'll always take advantage. But he's just, he's, as a legitimate businessman, you know, he certainly had a fine track record. And uh, obviously, there was plenty of. Um, grey areas and illegitimate work going on.
1: So at the time So this day in in May 1996 it it sounds like sort of the opening of a Quentin Tarantino film. You have Stephen Stephen Cameron, this 21 year old boxer uh, in one car you have this uh, road rage incident involving a guy Kenny Noy and a witness who is a massive big cocaine dealer to what happened. Uh, Mm. Noy takes out a knife Stabbed Stephen Cameron unfortunately it's fatal he does a runner but the background story to Noi is fascinating he's been involved in the the Brinks Ally the Brinks mat robbery sorry and mm. he's also been involved in this killing of a policeman for which he's acquitted but he's nonetheless got a really hefty jail term he's actually on license is he isn't he when this he, I, this road I think rage by the happens. time his
0: license was just either coming up it was a three because he'd served quite a long sentence. He, so it would have been either just coming more or less to the end. Um, and so life was looking up for him, you know, and this uh, moment of madness. And it's it's rather strange because this is the this is the enigma of, of Kenny Noy. And it's this throughout 30 years he spent in prison. He's never he's had a complete blemish free record, not and, and prisons are inherently violent places. And if you've got a reputation like Kenny Noy, then people will be confronting you and trying to. Take you out and challenge you, and so he, held, he has withstood those pressures within the prison system over here, and some of the most serious Category A, Category tri- AAA prisons, without a blemish uh, uh, on his prison record for not one marker for violence. And the, before the death of DC Fordham, you know he was, you know, he was in his forties. There was no record of violence um, mm. uh, on the intelligence. So it was bizarre that these two tragic incidents label him, you know, as you rightfully say, this is a man who's killed two people convicted uh, of murdering uh, one person. But he is, um, after he kills uh, Stephen Cameron, Stephen Cameron then um, is brought to hospital, pronounced dead. He he sees on Sky News the confirmation uh, of a road rage incident and police are seeking out uh, the driver of a Land Rover or Discovery type vehicle. And what was interesting was he thought at the time exactly uh, like any other police officer. Nick Bittes would, would eventually become the, uh, the SAO Senior Investigating Officer from Kent Police. So Nick Biddis adjudicated, as Kenny Noy adjudicated at the time, that this was a self-solver, that there would be CCTV. This was close um, to the Dartford Tunnel. There was CCTV everywhere. This was still uh, in the Last, uh, I, I, I suppose, the dwindling years of the IRA years in London and those threats. So, there was, London was the most CCTV'd up uh, and its environs city in the world. And so, the well, was Sunday afternoon, drivers, you know, 30 or 40 witnesses, um, cameras everywhere. Clearly, this was going to be uh, a self solver. They were going to get the number plate, they were going to get IDs. In any event, the cameras didn't work, work. The witnesses were unsatisfactory. Nothing was ever resolved. Kenny Noy thought, like Nick Bittes, that this was a self-solver. He had to get away, and be, and he was going to get away and let people the statements be taken and see what they got before he might return and either fight for a manslaughter or a self-defense. As it happens, there was no evidence. And unbelievably, at the end, if Kenny Noy had done nothing, literally just gone home, so rid of the clothes he was in there would have been no evidence linking him to the scene because within two weeks of him uh, uh of the of the death um uh, danielle cable and alan de cabell were given photographs of kenny Noy, and uh, uh they couldn't identify him right and there was no dna there was nothing to link him to the scene the only thing which linked him to the scene were all the actions he took to to flee the scene to flee the country, and he went to elaborate lengths to replace uh, his car and get rid of the car, and all kind of avenues and arrows were saying, "Okay, well, who's left? Who's left? And nobody could quite, who's left the scene? Mm. And the reality was, this was going to be a local uh, murder, a local killing. Somebody on a Sunday drive, they were going to live pretty close close to the scene, even though nationally there were about 17,000 potential Land Rover discoveries, um, which could have been Uh, uh, potential vehicles. So basically, there was no evidence linking him to the scene, but he fled nonetheless and he fled in grand style. But
1: like road rage was a huge, big story then. And was it because Mm. of this Kenneth Noy incident purely or was there other incidents? I, I couldn't kind of recall. There was a lot of sort of, you know, fear about road rages and uh almost certain smaller incidents would, were being blown mm. out of all proportion. But perhaps it was because of this.
0: It was because of this and the kind of a moral panic developed in and around this incident because with the road rage, we all get annoyed in the car. We're all effing and blind and sometimes are muttering under our breath at the kids in the back of the car and railing and this. And sometimes get it, people go out of the car, some people shout and, and then it, it kind of peters out. And yeah. sometimes, you know, to uh, uh people who should not be uh brought together or brought together by incidents like this and then and then if you bring a knife to a fight like that then obviously there's always a risk that that someone could die but the other extraordinary bit and the background to this is that obviously um John Palmer uh, who was known as uh, goldfinger who ran the the um uh, a massive property empire and uh, uh and was involved in the the Brinks match he got acquitted on Brink's Matter. He had, it was worth over 300 million pounds at this stage. He was a timeshare uh, kind of baron. Mm. And he put all his resources, he was a very good friend of Kenny Noyes at this stage, and he put all his resources behind Kenny Noyes to get him out of the country. They flew out in a helicopter, um, million pound helicopter, out to, to France to John Palmer's you know, a uh, estate in Normandy, and then they took a train up the next day from Normandy uh, to an airport outside Paris, where a, a a Learjet flew in from from Moscow to take him out to uh, Tenerife, where he laid low, and there he was able to indulge and, and live in in some of the various uh, properties and timeshare properties that John Palmer, who was one of literally, he was named as 105 on the. From the times uh, uh, rich list and the queen was 106 so this is a powerful and extraordinary c- character and so kenny noy was now relying upon his uh, wealth upper uh, and his um his, his contacts and so in the first couple of weeks kenny noy travels to spain oh. to france uh uh to morocco to the ivory coast and and uh, having left uk airspace and at no stage was he ever asked for a passport or ID documents, because when you're when they arrived in uh, on one of their journeys into Madrid Airport, they were put into VIP lanes and and limos were brought in to take them out of off the Learjet to brought into hotels, and so this was the life of of uh, a life of luxury, which didn't stop even though he was on the run.
1: I can just see that literally in my head. I can see the tabloid newspapers coming off the printing presses. The amount of kind of. Uh, you know, wow bits to that whole story are just incredible. Um, And, you know, obviously sympathies to Stephen Cameron and his family. But, you know, having Kenny Noy and John Palmer Goldfinger in the middle of this and and this idea that they flee into luxury. And of course, that's what gave this story legs and, you know, meant that we're still (laughs) talking about it today. Now, what happened and how long did Noy stay on the run?
0: Well, he stayed on the run for two and a half years, which is quite extraordinary, because according to some ministerial records, uh, you know, the police were able to employ the services of MI5, MI6. Obviously, Interpol were involved. But for two and a half years, he stayed um, uh, on the run successfully. And eventually he kind of left the protection of Jean Palmer and decided he had to kind of rely upon his own uh, wits, and he travelled across South America. He tra- travelled to the Caribbean, Africa, in Spain. He settled down uh, in uh, just close, um, about an hour from the coast of Gibraltar, um, and he settled down there, away from the from from the uh, Costa del Sol, away from um, uh, Marbella. Uh, but within sh- two hours of, of Marbella. But he basically uh, kind of laid low, invented a life, and he did everything which nobody expected of him. He went to South America, he went to Cuba, he took a lover. He, you know, he spent a great deal of time in the Caribbean. And, um yeah, he became more traveled. And while he was abroad, he still was able to do pretty kind of unsophisticated techniques, can you know, engage with some of his old contacts, his family, and arrange for passports. He got legal advice. But at this stage, because the police were aware he was effectively the number one suspect, he wasn't arrested. There was no warrant for his arrest. There was a blue warrant in Interpol for, for the police in the UK to be uh, warned or to be to be uh, informed if he if he was spotted. But effectively, so anybody offering him Um, help was kind of immune from any prosecution because, you know, he was he wasn't a wanted man. And they knew that although the only evidence they really had, the only evidence they really had on Kenny Noy was the fact all the uh, efforts he made at uh, fleeing the, the, uh, the scene. So they needed to get an ID from another ID from Danielle Cable which they subsequently did get after two and a half years. But for a great deal of time, Kenny Noy, uh, you know, just lived uh, an extraordinary life of freedom and, and luxury. So and, he was essentially uh, on on the on run, the
1: run for the, yeah. from the investigation rather than from pending charges, because they were presumably all the while trying to build a case for the director of prosecutions. And while they had Noy as their central character, they had to build a case around him and his... his his You're
0: anxious. absolutely right. So they built the case around there with Danielle Cable as the chief witness and Alan Dacabral, the big drug dealer. <laughs> but the reality was their IDs would not have worked because obviously, within after they had failed to identify um, Kenny Noy from very good photographs, as Nick Bitter said, they um, you know, then it was announced in the news, of the, late departed news of the world. Uh, Ian Edmondson and Gary Jones of News of the World had done a, a big splash to say he was the number one suspect. And then his photograph was around the world. So clearly, um, any identification of him was going to be problematic, uh, particularly in view of the fact that uh, before the newspaper identified him as the number one suspect, the key witnesses could not identify him. So nonetheless, they decided to try and get Danielle Cable over to Spain if um, when they finally tracked him down. Now, there's been a myth about Uh, And um, all sorts of stories about how he was tracked down. And was it uh, 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 was it uh, underworld um, uh, super grasses? Was it, you know, the whispering city, as you know, the underworld. But actually, it was very banal that there was an accidental sighting of him in Cadiz, close to to Barbarte, where he lived um, on the coast pretty remote coast of Spain. And it's a real horse racing and horse jumping uh, country. And he accidentally didn't intend at this show jumping event. And he turned around, he bumped into a couple he knew from Kent. And the couple were law abiding, but but he bumped into them. They bumped into him and they knew this is one of the most wanted men in the world. The only other person on the radar was probably Whitey Bulger, who was on the run for much longer, but at the same time in the US. And they bumped into him he saw them and they had exchanged pleasantries. What do you do? Mm. They now knew, Oh God, the last thing we want to do is to bump into somebody who's one of the most wanted men in the world. And the last thing he wants to do is to bump into them. Anyway. So without asking, they prompted one of the couple, uh, the mom had said, listen, don't worry, Ken, it comes to, you know, if you're caught, it won't have anything to do with us. About a month or so later, You know, uh, it's not too sure exactly how, but clearly a statement was was written. It may have been the fact that they went to the police themselves. It may have been the fact that they disclosed this sighting to somebody else and they went to the police, either which way a statement was given to the police and um, which um, I was able to very recently to confirm. And this couple basically wrote and said about the whereabouts of kenny noy and linked him into cadiz just a couple of miles from where actually he was he was based suddenly not only that during his interaction with this couple he answered a phone call to one of his sons which then basically was able they were able to connect the son's phone to his phone and this was you know some fatal mistakes And some might think, well, Kenny Noy was he he was he was getting quite lackadaisical on the run. He was connect. His family were coming backwards and forth. Um, You know, he saw some key contacts. He was living a pretty privileged life and had access to family, access to cash and access access to old associates. So you might wonder why he hadn't been caught before. In any case. The big breakthrough came when he was located here in Cadiz and this and then uh, they decided to um, uh, to to basically um, uh, wa- record all the phone calls, tap all the phone calls and then send people over and they engaged with the local police and were able to track him down. And then they got Danielle Cable over to identify him in Locus. And once they did that, they were able to use that, that to get a warrant for his arrest. And then they eventually nailed him um, after nearly two and a half years in the run, which Mm. is, uh, you know. yeah.
1: So the trial at the Old Bailey, um, their key piece of their key, obviously, witness is Danielle Cable, who's to go into witness protection program because uh, him and the people around him are deemed so uh, dangerous. But what, what happens during the trial? Well, during the trial, what was it,
0: she gave good evidence. I mean, Kenny Noy came out in this book and he says there was never a threat against her. And and he said she gave good evidence and, you know, most of the evidence um, pointed to, you know, a ruckus and a fight. And she obviously said that she didn't say that that uh, Stephen was the instigator. But in all other respects, uh, Kenny Noah and his team wouldn't really have had much problem with it because be- once initially in Spain, before the extradition, and he fought extradition, he denied ever being present at the scene. But when he came over to the UK, he admitted it was, he was there. He said it was self-defense and that Stephen or, or at the least or, or possibly manslaughter. Yeah. Um, what had happened then was, so she gave good evidence, but this day she was in, when the witness protection a couple of uh, uh, months before the, um, the the start of the trial and um, maybe a bit longer and, and then but during the trial Alan de Cabral uh, gave fantastic fantastic and fantastical evidence. Uh, the, as the judge described him as the as the um, uh, unforgettable Alan de Cabral. Now this was the big drug dealer. He was twenty seven stone and uh, this was this was a man who. Um, uh, arrived in the in, in the dock, and it, uh, he, his phone goes off in the dock. Anyway, he 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 tells the the jury that he he took down the full number, and he adds all sorts of extraneous details which never happened because obviously the nine 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 call was recorded. Nonetheless, he does give the key bits of evidence. He said, "As Kenny Noy walked away from the scene, Kenny Noy smirked as if that will uh, uh, that will show them and." Uh, And Kenny Noy obviously discounted that. At this stage, Kenny Noy's team had no idea that Alan de was a major drug dealer. Least of all, they had no idea that he had been arrested just six months or so before the trial and uh, been found with 56 guns, uh, £126,000 worth of cash, uh, a car which is full of uh, false compartments for smuggling drugs, guns and cash. And... um, uh, so the cops, HMRC, raided him with, with armed police. And um, uh, and then he got a little rap on the knuckles. So th- this was a... He was caught with so much drugs and cash that the case could have, uh, could have been made that he would get 16 to 20 years in prison. Instead, he got no time, a rap on the knuckles, and he got his cash returned to him, his guns returned to him, and his... Um, obviously, the drugs were taken away. And he didn't get his his car bark, which is worth over 20,000 pounds until after he gave evidence, raising the suspicion later on that he was being bribed with this. But so the jury had no idea that, about his past or about the fact that he got an easy ride with the with the, with the police. And of course, if you had known that as a defense witness, uh, defense barrister, you would be making heavy play of it. Now, the difference is it didn't make the difference between whether Kenny Noy brought a knife to a fight, which he did, or whether Stephen Cameron died, which he did. But it was absolutely crucial for the difference between manslaughter and murder. Mm. And um, so obviously if you're putting a gleeful click in your heels as you've killed somebody, um, then obviously it's not gonna play well with the jury. But during that trial, his uh, de Cabral's, um wife, ex-wife, well, they were separated, phoned up the court and asking to talk to the defense team because she said, um, uh, and the defense team, because, it was, her, it was her view that everything Alan de Cabral said was lies. <laughs> he told the, the jury that he was he, he was going for a drive, testing his car, which is in repairs. No, he wasn't. He was going to deliver drugs. He said he'd come from uh, he'd come from uh, uh, he um, he brought his kids to math. He hadn't been to math in sixteen years, and uh, uh, and he he said he hadn't taken any recreational drugs. When in fact his wife was saying he was a he was a major drug addict as well as drug dealer. Mm. And he was she was phoning up, and of course um, the 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 bar the the clerks at the court were saying, listen, you've got to talk to we can't you can't talk to the judge. You've got to talk to the defense barrister. So she got the name of Batten, which is a, another QC. Um, and she phoned the wrong baton. And uh, he thought, what the hell are you talking about? So, you know, d- during the trial, there was this amazing event which could have happened, yeah. but which went past by. Then, about, then he was, Kenny and I went on to get convicted. And then about three months, four months after his conviction, she con- contacts him in prison to say, listen, um, this is what happened. You know, my husband gave false testimony against you and it was a, it's a load of nonsense. And um, uh, really, you could have i felt you could have done with with, with some um, uh, with some being able to challenge that this was extraordinary. Um, there was an appeal. Uh, and this was obviously going to help his appeal because the man difference in manslaughter and murder in that situation, it was quite, quite thin a thin sliver in legal terms. This was not a premeditated attack. It was a fight which went wrong. Classic manslaughter, but you bring a knife to a fight, well, there's always a risk that you, that somebody could be murdered, and that is your uh, men's rea, and that basically can move it to murder. But you know, like, p- police officers have said, you know, if it wasn't you Kenny Noy, it could easily have been manslaughter. In any case, these decisions were very tightly fought because... He, uh, the, the the he had been. There was some suggestion that Kenny Noy might have been convicted for manslaughter in relation to the death of uh, of DC Fordham, but um, had chosen self defence, and that the police had gone for murder. when when it might have been better for manslaughter in this case. They went for murder, <laughs> and um, they got conv- Noy was convicted. But there was a big appeal now coming up because uh, not only was uh, the cabral now a discredited witness, but there was also evidence that the the um, the pathologist in the case was also incred- was discredited and uh, about seven to 10 of the trials of the pathologist, one of the pathologists in the case, who gave evidence, which again gave evidence about force and blow and motivation, uh, which would point to the difference between manslaughter and murder. He um, was discredited and a lot of his trials were overturned. So when it came to appeal, this was going to look great, but something unbelievable happened. So. Alan de Cabral, who was now obviously the Beckmore, he was the, the sword in the side of Kenny Noy during the trial. But now with this new evidence, which the state conceded, he was now potentially the get out of jail clause and for a retrial and an appeal. But um, uh, with about eight months after the trial, he was shot dead. <laughs> and inevitably, people said murdered, executed, gang style. Mm. And people thought, hold on, it must be Kenny Noy took him out. But anybody who knew the case would be saying, are you kidding me? Th- this guy's testimony, you know, in the dock, and he'd have been d- directed, subpoenaed to the court for any appeal, would have been the ticket out of jail for Kenny Noy for an appeal. In any case, he died. Was and and his death remains unsolved. Kenny Noy tried subsequent appeals and then spent 21 years in prison.
1: So you've spoken to him, and he's in his 70s now, is he? Yeah, he's 75. And uh, I think
0: you know, I've spoken to him. Very few few journalists, uh, in fact, no other journalists have had any close access to him at all. Obviously, plenty of officers and police officers had a very plenty of contact with him over the year he was long regarded as um you know as a mover and shaker and as a fence and a guy who's a very smart businessman he was also very very charming he also had a long reputation for being a member of the masons and using the masons as an opportunity to curry favor with the police officers allegations that he had corrupted police officers pretty strong allegations nobody's been specifically convicted. But this is a man at the center of all these key signal crimes, Brink's Matt, the death of DC uh, John Fordham and the road rage incident, three key incidents like the the Brink's Matt Now the subject of the major gold Mm. uh, series now on on BBC one. And um, he, you know, and so the conundrum is, you know, this is not a man who's inherently violent and yet two men uh, are, are, are now dead. And he, uh, continues to breathe. But I my interactions with him, and he spent 20, 30 years in prison, 21 years for this sentence. The baseline sentence was 16 years, and they, there was a lot of political pressure because the press and the tabloids, you know, just they, they would have, as you'd imagine, demonized him. But he'd done his time, and I think we brought him together with Ian Brown, who was one of a colleague of D.C. Fordham, and he accepted that... Uh, you know which I, I think he didn't at the time but he accepted in the company of uh of kenny Noy. 40 years on after um dc fordham's death that the the verdict was he accepted the verdict and it wasn't a uh an aberrant verdict it was you know it was a very reasonable verdict it's not a verdict necessarily that police officers would have wanted but you know it wasn't uh you know some outrageous decision so that he accepted the self-defense plea of Kenny Noy and the fact that that um, was reasonable and they got together and you got a sense that after two major players, a major police officer and a major uh, villain get together, they've now, you know, both are retired in every sense and you got a real insight into the social history of those those four or five decades of crime, you know, and uh, although Kenny Noy wasn't a bank robber, he could speak to you know that era he could speak to the era of the flying squad and the sweeney and and john thaw and uh you know, re- re- remarkable insight but i found it to be you know um you know now you know very charming uh very open uh and very contrite in the book we don't state anything as fact uh i wrote it with carl hauman um and uh, a colleague and uh but we don't state anything as fact we just lay out laid out for what the, he has to say. Uh, yeah. And then we also counteracted with with the lead investigator, Nick Bittis, and also with uh, Ian Brown and other contributors. So we balance his contribution, you know, I think quite delicately. And at the heart of it, and Stephen Cameron's death, watermarks it all. But mm. I think I also try and look at it as a, from a criminological perspective, you know, that, yeah. And I also believe personally that if you've done your time, you've done your time. And I work with a, a charity, the AP Foundation, where we bring, you know, peer-to-peer um, uh, ex, ex-offenders meeting with young offenders and trying to, you know, kind of um, prevent that cycle and that, that that life cycle of crime. And so, um, you know, I think you have got to take him as he is. He appears to be very contrived for the events which happened uh, and he's moved on with his life. He, he's still under licence. And, um uh, the one I think poignant thing he did say was that uh, he he said it was only in the postscript, but it did make the front page of the the mirror the other day over here. He said that there was no reason for Danielle Cable to remain in in witness protection, because, you know, he clearly would never have been released on license if there was any, if, if parole board could have access to all the intelligence thought there was any risk to him uh, causing Danielle Cable at any stage. You know, she went into witness protection about three years after the incident, about six or a couple of months before the trial. um, And he claims that she was never at risk. But in any case, as he as he now runs free, there's no reason why um, she shouldn't uh, be free from witness protection.
1: So does he or do you, having looked at the case, believe that it was the the death of the police officer, the undercover surveillance officer, John Fordham, that maybe gave police the future appetite to go for Noy well, in such a I, way?
0: I, well, I think they're very open about it. It's, you know, of course, that's the human condition. You know, you it's hugely visceral, even for Ian Brown. It's a huge visceral. Your colleague is, 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 is killed in controversial circumstances. I mean, to be honest, it appeared to be kind of badly organised and, uh, and not particularly uh, well uh, orchestrated kind of raid or surveillance. Uh, One would have thought they would have anticipated that there were dogs on site and they didn't seem to take that into account. But he, uh, you know, you kill a police officer in any country in the world and other police officers are not going to take too kindly Mm. and they will. And the sense was that they were going to make sure they were going to get him. And so uh, to avoid that, you better not get in trouble with the law. And in, in many ways, the Brink's Mac conviction was, you know, quite predictable. What the events surrounding the death of Stephen Cameron was just just ludicrously unlucky, tragic, mm, uh, catastrophic mm. um, and devastating, of course, for Stephen Cameron's family in, in particular.
1: And at his age now, um, you know, Noé is going to live out his years uh, with freedom, presumably. But he will be very aware of his former pal and the guy who helped him, John. Palmer Goldfinger who yeah. died like it was assassinated um, while he was doing the gardening, uh, a guy who had sort of gone into retirement, shall we say? There's always a bullet waiting for these people. I think um, it does not feel that sense of danger.
0: No, I think I think when um, interesting, when John Palmer died, the, the police visited kenny noy and we have it in the book and they asked and they they asked him do you know anything about it they knew he didn't have, have anything to do do with it uh because he got on well with, with palmer but they just they wondered if he had any information about who who might have done it so um but uh, palmer w- was a man who really had lots of enemies and i think kenny noy left, so um and despite the, it was a fantastic tabloid fodder and pulp that he was always going to get knocked off when he came out of prison or there was going to be a, a bloodbath. None of that happened. He's over four years out um, from um, his sentence. He was released in 2019. And, uh, you know, literally, it's been, I think, um, nothing other than a few maybe parking tickets. So it's been very peaceable. So there's no no hint of any retribution or any issue like that. And, you um, So I think he he was very different character to John Palmer, who, you know, had made lots of enemy, particularly over in Spain. And at the time of John Palmer's death, he was facing uh, potential trial and uh, more investigations in Spain. Um, But when Kenny Noy came back from Spain uh, and he was forced to come back by extradition because he didn't concede his extradition and come back, it meant that he could only be charged for the crime's. Um, for the one crime, the murder of Stephen Cameron. So, in many ways, he could he couldn't be charged with any other crime. Um, uh, whereas Palmer was was under pressure in Spain, and uh, yeah, it, it was um, that it's extraordinary that that death still remains unsolved. Mm. Even more extraordinary that he was shot in broad daylight, and the ambulance was called, and a pathologist kind of examined him, and for a week. They they thought that they didn't realise he was shot. They just thought he was uh, uh, open wounds and his body was from a uh, a hernia operation or, or or some sorts that he'd had that week. So the story and mystery around John Palmer is 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 just another layer to this crazy story.
1: It's an extraordinary one. Well, Kenneth Noy, uh, you know, and finally, I you're you're I, I know you well, and I know how that writing maybe isn't. <laughs> the first and most natural skill that comes to you you're a broadcaster you're a great speaker etc an amazingly complex story to take on in a book mm. but uh, i take it you're going to kick back now for a while this must have been an enormous project
0: well, well, well you know you know yourself you you knock those books out all the time and it's oh, really it's i
1: find it very difficult as well
0: well the thing about it is i it, it, effectively i regarded it as 3 months once you have the access, and I had full access with Carl, myself and Carl had full access to, to Kenny Noy, and we'd full access to Nick Biddis, um, the two primary characters, the cops and robbers. And so I could pick up uh, uh the, the, the phone at any stage. So it I just took two years, two and a half years of this time on the run and told that story. And you know, there was a start, middle, and end, and it was in that order primarily, and then we just and carved out the detail. And I think it was three months structuring the book and three months of writing the book. But I was I'm glad to have got it done. Yeah. And, uh, uh because the other books I've written have been about myself, which has been terribly, terribly boring. And it's just so, so nice and refreshing to write about somebody else anymore. So, you know, it's not all about me, Donald. So anyway. Yeah, no, today- look,
1: and it's one of the it is one of the most extraordinary stories I have to say that has really, you know, has got tentacles into every aspect of organized crime over the most incredible period of time over the decades. And uh, the fact that Kenny Noy is still standing and able to tell you his story or certainly some of it is 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 incredible.
0: So well, I, I think the key thing is in documentary filmmaking or in your journalism or my journalism, we've always, you know, we're open to talk to anybody. And and I think at some stage, sometimes the most unlikeliest people are willing to talk at the most unlikeliest of times. You always have to be ready for it. And I think we've been very lucky, myself and, and Carl, my co-author, very lucky to be able to get uh, uh, a little, little bit of social history and criminal history done um, with this book. So delighted with it.
1: And listen, a great lesson in you never know if somebody's going to talk until you ask. Exactly. Thanks very much, Nicola. Thank you, Donal.